Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people to dreams to adult people living those dreams or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. It's the end of 2022, which means it's time once again for my annual year-end check-in with Jason Zinneman, critic at large for the New York Times. Jason and I talk about the top trends we saw in comedy this year, the best up-and-comers in stand-up, the craziest ways comedy intersected with politics, and after all that, could we determine a most valuable performer for the year? It's our Comedy MVPs of 2022 episode. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's in the way, let's get to it! Welcome to the 8th Annual Comedy MVPs Podcast. Joining me once again, the illustrious, now guild-worthy, Jason Zinneman, critic at large for the New York Times. Welcome, Jason. Great to be here. Eight years. We're so old, Sean. We're we see, we're grizzled veterans. <laughs> but are we as grizzled as the comedians we're about to talk about? Some of them. <laughs> I've got, I always try to... to I hate, you know, like a lot of critics, probably you, I'm not, I don't want to assume, but I've mixed feelings about these year end things. I've realized they have a real important purpose because people pay attention to them and they read them. That matter. It can, it gives exposure in a way that other things don't. So I always try to get a lot of young up and comers in here because I feel like what's the point? That's the bet to the extent that you can't grade art, right? It's like there's no, it's not sports, you know, but. I think, I think it's, uh, it's not sports. We're, we're announcing the, the MVP. I know, I know. I hate to, I hate to break the fourth wall and point out this, this, this ridiculous exercise for what it is, but it's been eight years. <laughs> eight is enough. Could, people could handle the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a charade. The whole thing's a charade. I like that you did point out that you've learned to embrace it and make it your own because your column in the New York Times is structured around as many different superlatives as you can conjure up, which yeah. does give give space for people who otherwise wouldn't make a top ten list, for example. That's uh, um, that's intentional. That's intentional. I I I, I was worried that they were going to make me do a top ten, but I didn't do a top ten. But I do feel like to not be a coward, I try to do best special. Looking back on this year, what really stood out as for you? Like the if I was to say like 2022 comedy, mm-hmm. what happened? Explain it to someone in the future, Sean. What what would you say? Okay, the two there are two things that stuck out to me in terms of performance. Okay, the first is noticing just how much comedians loved having live audiences back. Mm. The number of specials that dealt with crowd work or that dealt with. You could just see it on some of these comedians' faces, their joy in being able to interact with a crowd. You know, the the top special on most everybody's list this year was Gerard Carmichael's Rathaniel, 
And that one, I don't know that it was even intentional, the call and response that comes with the audience. But then you saw that in a number of other specials that came out later in the year or, or comedians like Patton Oswalt, you wouldn't think of him as a crowd work guy, but he devoted like a solid 10, 15 minutes to just dicking around with people in the front row. And it's like, obviously they were just so overjoyed to have people in front of them. No, I think you, you, this is a fantastic point. And I don't think, I don't think anyone's actually like put those together that, that like, this is because of the pandemic, but I think you're right. It is, it is the people. And it wasn't just Pat Oswald. You have people who always did crowd work stuff. Like, right. like Sam Morrell. Andrew, Andrew Schultz did a lot of crowd sure. work. Then you have like, I went to see James Acaster. Okay. Um, who is a critical darling for his last one. His show now is called, I think it's like heckling aloud or something. And the, the, the premise of it was people can heckle on all they want. And he embraced the kind of background. And I got to be, be honest with you. I, and, and I think you're right that also, like, I found looking back at what I wrote this year, I wrote a lot about audience and lack of audience. You know, Norm MacDonald, Bo Burnham, I wrote about a piece on that. I wrote, yeah, I wrote this piece on Daniel Kitson, which talked about his trying to, um, you know, think about the audience in a kind of more intimate, humane, person by person way. You had obviously all the the kind of people who are complaining about, you know, the kind of cancel culture brigade thinking about audience and you know, what the hemming them in and not. I th- I understand why. Yeah, I think people miss having uh, being in the room with other people. They realize that that's part of what's special about live comedy. I think reinventing the relationship is a great thing. That said, I'm a little ambivalent. I don't think it's a good sign that we're normalizing crowd work in stand-up specials. <laughs> you and I are old enough to remember. I remember there was a, an episode of Louie mm-hmm. in which there was, a, you know, he dramatized a like debate among comedians about crowd work. And in the way that he often did in that show, he gave the best argument to the side he didn't agree with. Right. He was the anti crowd work guy. And that was, but the, but it was seen as kind of bold that he was giving the best argument to people who do crowd work well. Right. And I think we've, it's interesting to just look at it as a, as a historical marker that like we've come so far that now it doesn't seem so bold to stand up for crowd work. It's everywhere. It's on social media constantly is crowd work clips. And I think it does. People who don't understand crowd work is a lot easier than it looks. And it's a bit of a, it can be a cheap trick. There's great, there's good and bad, but it, um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. I, I think, I think you and I both noticed Kyle Kinane put out a clip this past week where he's like, the algorithm is demanding I do crowd work, but I hate crowd work. You said something else just now about another way that comedians are interacting with the audience that I also saw as a trend or a continuation of a trend, which is the the notion that these famous wealthy comedians who are complaining about cancel culture, about the woke virus, the Elon Musk comedians of the world, as it were. MVP. <laughs> the chief MVP. It's actually, it's the new hack. Go back 30 some years to when Andy Kindler published the hack handbook of comedy. It was all about the the fact that hack isn't just talking about airplanes. Hack is about pandering to the audience because it's the cheapest kind of response or laughter you can get. And that's what all of this stuff is to me now. 
And I don't know, you know, you and I are both Generation X, and it seems like a lot of these comedians that are falling into this trap are also Generation X. So I don't know what that says about us as a demographic. Someone should bring back the the, the Kindler's hack handbook. Or I don't know if that's that exact thing. The thing that I think is someone should do, they should have a site, and I don't know how to do it, Mm -hmm. but I think about this all the time, when things become hack. And it's not like exact. Right. But right. if you see enough comedy, you start to, and you see like the same premise enough. You're like, okay, if I was someone who cared about being original, I wouldn't use that anymore. Right. And it's different in 2022 than it was in 2012. Right. So for instance, and by the way, let me just say another example I thought of was those specials, the interactive specials where they mm-hmm. allow the audience to choose where to go next. Another example of people playing with the audience. Yeah. But Elon Musk is, I think, the comedy MVP and a great example, a great, uh, <laughs> Wait, are you of serious what is, or sarcastic? I am. I am. I am saying he's a great judge of what is hack because he's, he is very interested in comedy. He steals a lot of jokes. And when he made that, when he made that joke, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Let's put aside the politics and look at the comedy. Okay. Mm-hmm. To me, that was like, okay, like there's as good a sign as ever as no one should ever make that premise ever again who wants to take you, be taken seriously as a funny person the second one again a lot of these hacks things in 2022 are about like trans issues right mm-hmm. it, like uh i identify now as a you know a gym sock or whatever like right. any any joke i just forget about the politics of it for a second i mean which are it's just i i don't care i know you live in new york you think you're surrounded by liberals whatever a million people have done that premise, right? And so when um, Sebastian Mascalco, who until now I was under the impression wanted to present himself as a sort of an apolitical co- comedian who appeals to everybody, builds this whole premise over a thing he invented, right? A thing he said is not no, he true. Had, yeah. yeah which is he probably like, got it from listening to Joe Rogan's podcast. He probably got it from there, but let's say we don't know that, but we know, we know it's not true. We know he decided to make up a story about a kid who identified as a lion and ridiculed this fake thing, right? It's just so telling. And it's particularly telling that it's not Joe Rogan doing it. It's a, it's like the guy who I would have said would do whatever he could to not be involved in the polarizing culture war thing. So it's like, I do think it would, it's interesting to look at. You're right. I would say that that some of that cancel culture was hacked years ago, but right. I do think like some of those those specific examples of it, like the trans jokes, the pronouns joke, the identity, those are became those are as far as I'm concerned. Like if, if I hear you doing that in the special, you're not serious about being any, doing anything. Right. Right. I like though the idea of a a site that tells you when a joke has jumped the shark. Yeah. And uh, and then and then and then you've already answered it yourself by saying it's whenever Elon Musk has has put it in Twitter, <laughs> then it's done. Well, the joke is done. The format really, is done. The joke is done. I mean, there's room for disagreement, but not when it comes to Elon Musk. Like when Elon Musk <laughs> does that joke, it's done. Like right. you can you can make a case that certain things can be like dating, obviously, or is. It might, you know, you, it's there's some of these topics, and I've written about this a bit, like parenting, dating. They're so universal that you ca- you can't say they're take them off the table. Right. Um, but when Elon Musk does it, yeah, stop. But but you know, you bring up Sebastian, and that's why, like I talked about, 
us as Generation X and like noticing that it's it's always these guys and it's not necessarily all white guys either, but it is predominantly guys of our generation who are you didn't think of them as having these viewpoints, but they've planted a stake in the ground and and decided that for five or ten minutes of their hour special, they're going to make this argument. And okay, let, 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 let me let me offer them. Yeah, I think we're becoming hack complaining about them because I think we did it Ooh. last year and the year before. Let's okay, well, okay, well, here's something I didn't do last year, but I only did this year was I asked people about it. Like when I had Jeff Dunham on my podcast, mm. I put it straight to him. You know, it's maybe more pronounced as a ventriloquist, but the idea is you as a comedian decide what words come out of your mouth. If you want to say that people are trying to tell you what you can't and can't say on stage, you're still ultimately deciding what's important to talk about, right? Right. You're deciding what's what you're going to take up time in your hour special. Right. So if you if you take up it's, this is a new complaint, right? If if you're taking five to ten minutes to talk about cancel culture, that's five to ten minutes you could have been talking about anything else. So you're making you've decided it's, that this true, is but, I, but the same could be this said, is the hill you want to die on. But this or is this true is, of us. But, this is true of us right now. We could be talking about. Sarah Schaefer's show, I just saw Isabel. We can talk about all anything we want, but we're, we we agree on this. We know, and I think that like there is also like room for talking about language. That's it. I just I'm bored with it. Like I think that we should try to model like. Okay, so you know. I know you just said your comedy MVP is Elon Musk. I would counter. Okay. Respectfully. Yes. Yes. Time Magazine, their Man of the Year. Or person of the year is a comedian, is that a comedian right? who's the president of Ukraine. Oh. Vladimir Zelensky. Not to be confused with Man of the Year, the 2006 film starring the late great Robin Williams as a comedian talk show host who inadvertently runs for and becomes president of the United States. <laughs> so, would it would it be fair to argue that Zelensky? if he's the person of the year for the entire world, that he also might be the most valuable person in comedy. Uh, I mean, one could make a case for sure, but it's always funny. Like I, I, I didn't know the hell any, I've never seen any of his comedy before. So I don't think, it was, but yeah, I think he obviously is in terms of like world historical value. He can make a case, but I'm not even mm-hmm. sure I would say Elon Musk for me, like, like if I look at people who've made real breakthroughs who are significant, like I think like Kate Berland, mm-hmm. who's somebody who, you know, I think both of us have known about for a while, but this year she had like, she had this show downtown that everyone was talking about. That was hot, it was like the hottest second in New York. And it's coming back over the winter. And she had a FX special, which I think was, you know, although mm-hmm. I think didn't get the attention it probably deserved, um, was a great example of what, she did. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are like baffled by her and don't like her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of people who love her, like a lot. Certainly she has a devoted comedy fan base, but there, this was the year she became someone you had to have like an opinion about. Um, oh, definitely. She also, she's a great, she's a great pick because she also put out a fabulous sketch comedy special yep. with John early on Peacock, the, the streaming platform that you're not watching. She is in the cast of the 
Amazon Prime video adaptation of A League of Their Own. That's and right. she was in one of the most talked about movies of the year. Don't worry, darling. It's a crazy year. So it's she was all year. over the place, as was Nick Kroll, who was also in Don't Worry, Darling. That's true. That's true. Would you put, so Car- Carmichael, you're right. I put him as best special and a lot of people did. Yeah. Uh, would you? I, you know, I'm, I'm putting the final touches on my list and I, I don't want to be a spoiler alert, but no, you know. I think, I don't know who you'd put higher. Although, you know, part of me feels like it's the, uh, that people will, will chastise us as critics and go, Oh, you're just doing the Hannah Gatsby thing again and, and do in voting for the important piece of work instead of the funniest hour. I don't know what the funniest hour would be. I mean, earthquake I'd, might I'd, be I'd, up I'd, there, but his wasn't even an hour. It was like 36 minutes. I'd put that, I, that's what I put in my list was earthquake is the funniest one. But the, <laughs> right. But uh, I embrace all those Hannah Gatsby critiques. I feel like it's a sign that comedy critics are, are getting treated the same as uh, <laughs> film critics. Uh, we're, we're people doing too. Our job. Yeah. I'll, 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 you know, I like to, I'll say something. Here's one that I, no one's going to say. And, and, and I could, I wouldn't put it in the paper, but I'll say in the podcast because. Okay. I was talking to a source a few months ago who's like a big industry person. Okay. Industry. Uh, you talk like about just industry. not someone you would even know, but like is like a person who's involved in the business of comedy. Mm-hmm. I can't say who it is. But not Robbie Pro. No, not Robbie Pro. But they uh because of this, they like hired a firm that figures out like how what are the most popular specials. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Across platforms right now i'm intrigued and jealous i know i know you have I, this I, I didn't even know this kind of i was pretty naive about this stuff so this person had like a top 10 of what the top 10 most popular and granted this could be completely even the person recognizes it's not exact it's flawed all the usual things that yeah, said you, yeah i would number one mm-hmm. okay what do you what would you think the number one most watched special was now granted that I, this was a couple months ago as i said so i didn't but what do you think the most watched special was up to that point Hmm. Chappelle's lecture? No, not even, not even on the top ten. Uh, I mean, Jeff Dunham wants me wants me to believe it's him. He was on. He was like the like number nine or something. He mm-hmm. was like he was on that top ten. But you're never gonna guess because I was shocked. I was shocked. But it's revealing about our blind spots. Okay. So okay. what? Was... Number one is mm. Cat Williams World War Three. Okay. Now this tells me a couple things. One, I saw Cat Williams over the pandemic. He was the first arena show I saw. Mm-hmm. And he destroyed, oh my God. Oh, I mean, yeah. The man is like an incredible arena performer. Crowd went, now talk about a crowd psyched to be back in an audience. I've, I've seen him Barclays, a different tour, but yeah. He, people don't realize, because this was not a, even a good Cat Williams special. Like, this was a, <laughs> Right. This was <laughs> half of, this was half good, half horrible. Yeah, this there was there's many better ones, but the he's way bigger than people realize, and certainly <clears throat> white people. I, I don't even know if a lot of people grasp that he's an arena show act. He's one of those guys who, like, yeah, came out of the pandemic early doing arena shows, is one of the biggest sellers out there. Like, he's a, has a case in the MVP discussion, but no one, none of the lists have him. Right. The numbers thing you you mentioned that it might be kind of suspect. Or sus, as your daughters might say. This podcast goes out to your daughters who are. You really do speak the language of the kids, Sean. 
<laughs> I don't want this. I don't want this episode to be mid. So, <laughs> all right, stop before you 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 strain yourself. But I mean, that is one of the tricks. Like, also when I talked to Jeff Dunham, he talked about having access to the numbers. And historically, I mean, even some of our peers following the industry have said that it's tough for showrunners or or talent to get a hold of their own numbers. And HBO doesn't release numbers a lot. So I don't know where your source is getting their numbers. Oh, but. no, no. There's, there, there's because precisely because of that, there, there are companies that are emerging to fill that niche. They want to make money. So right. they say, hey, they're not telling you things. This is why it's always better to release information and to be more transparent than because people are going to find ways to do it. Right. And, then, and then you just will have less control over it. Dunham told me it was, it's the agents. His agents can figure it out because Cer- that's how they make that. That's how they make their money is knowing what the numbers are. So, well, I'll tell you the other. I mean, I'm. I think like you. I'm. I'm like. I don't think this stuff is as important as other people do, but I'm interested in it. Like mm-hmm. I don't. Like I love when I write about someone who does not that popular. Like I think more pride. I don't think it means they're good. Like that's the thing that like the people are talking about who critique the Hannah Gatsby or critique film critics for celebrating movies that are not blockbusters. That's our job. But I, that doesn't mean I'm not really interested in who's doing well. Right. Um, and there's, there's how this special get rated, but there's also who's selling tickets. And that's a huge one. Yeah. I looked at that at the end of last year. I looked, you do a great job of covering that. Yeah. This is another big thing this year. I think is that people are selling tickets again. Like comedy, live comedy, whatever you hear is mm-hmm. healthy relative to like theater. And there's some acts that are doing, you know, better than made a career over the pandemic. I mean, people like Mark Norman, Sam Morell, Shane Gillis, real, this year, Shane Gillis became massive. And I still don't think people understand how massive I, again, that's, I, I don't know who it was. There was a Tim Dillon was, massive. Tim Dillon's the opposite. I think, Tim, I think we talked about Tim Dillon last year. I, I feel like he's fallen off a cliff. Again, I could be wrong. He's probably still could sell out stuff, but I, I don't hear most everyone I know, including big Tim Dillon fans, thought his mm-hmm. Netflix release was terrible. And I don't hear him in the discussion that much, right. which brings me to another MVP, which no one's going to pick. And again, I, I, I bring the, 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 the wild cards to the podcast. Sure. Chris, Chris DeStefano. Oh, especially Weshi. Now, why especially Weshi may be the most important special of the year because because he had to do it himself and then got it on netflix he started a new business model Mm -hmm. which is he was the first person to netflix for until him you would get a big paycheck or a small pay a relatively big paycheck and then netflix would have the rights forever because netflix had trouble this year their stock price dropped etc they started this leasing model where they have a, a much smaller paycheck and they have the rights for a, a year, two years, something like that. And you do all the marketing, you put the money down. Mm-hmm. And there was a bunch of specials, Tim Dillon's among them, which the average person could not, you know, might not notice, but is a fundamentally different business model. Whitney Cummings was another one, but we, and one that will have, may have really huge implications for the future of the Netflix special, maybe really bad ones. In the short term, it meant that Netflix was able to put out just as many specials as it has in years past, despite spending much less money. 
this, I remember getting the, the, the email from Krista Stefano and it said like, Krista Stefano, like, I forgot exactly, but it was like, personally, independently releases Netflix special. And I was like, what, what does that even mean? And right. so I called up and I asked, I poked around and I, and I was like, oh, he's part of, he's on the vanguard of this new thing. And, you know, when he gets the rights back, he'll be able to distribute it in any way he wants. And that's one thing that a lot of comedians want, right? They want the right to be able to have to right. be put on YouTube, et cetera. So it will be interesting. I also worry that this means that Netflix will take less risks on new artists. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you, to do this lease model, you need to have enough money to make a special. Because you're not getting enough money from the right. down payment. So it, 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 it's good for people who already have built in audiences like Tim Dillon. It almost sounds like a return to the original Netflix strategy. 100%. Before they got into the business at all, where they were just acquiring. I mean, they did one for Zach Galifianakis, and I guess they did one for Jeff Garland. But then until Bill Burr, it was mostly they were just acquiring things. This is a very savvy point, which is that it it's not as revolutionary as it as it seems because for instance most people don't know ali wong's breakthrough mm-hmm. she made herself paid for it and they just bought, it basically was the same model right right so it is it is more like a reverse a, a return to what it was originally that said the idea of the netflix special being this big deal was part of it was like an ex- the exclusivity of it mm-hmm. they'd have it forever that this is the year that changed who else do you have, Sean? Well, for a second there, before you said the words Chris Stefano, I thought you were going to say Joe Rogan. And not because not because of Joe himself, but because those other names that you mentioned right before, Mark Normand, Shane Gillis, in terms of getting huge, in this past year, as Joe Rogan's podcast has sort of retracted a bit, he's had those guys on as like part of like a monthly panel talk so he's essentially like giving these guys a huge push is that true has it has it retracted well certainly i haven't heard people talking about him as much in december of 2022 as i did in january of 2022 I, I and in term, and i say retracted just in terms of his pull of who he's getting his guests it seems like he's having a lot of repeat business and the comedian panel is symbolic of that like i think the pan i think the panel is mark norman shane gillis and ari shafir that's why i would say rogan is a name that doesn't even come up to me about 2022 he had he was you know previous years he might be but like those are examples of people and you have to give credit where it's due shane gillis made his success through youtube through a special right it wasn't through Joe Rogan. It was, I mean, it helped here and there, but like that was a massive, massive, it's like, I don't know, what is it? Seven. I, it's, I remember looking at the numbers and it was like, oh, this is w- way bigger right. than anything else. Right. This is it. And it then translated to ticket sales. Ari Shafir, I don't think it's as big as that Shane Gillis one was, but he finally came out with that special Jew, which also did really well. And that was, I don't, I think. That that's people using. I think this was a big year for YouTube. I think yes. Netflix had a bad year, and YouTube had a had a had a had a good one. 
And that's the other part of the leasing thing is that the leasing thing is a way to compete with YouTube because right. that's a bigger threat. The The thing that baffles me is why other streaming services, Peacock, Amazon, FX, aren't ma- seeing that Netflix is weak and investing more and in trying to compete. It feels as though HBO has re- reminded themselves that they were once the dominant force in comedy. Yeah. I know, I know you noticed, as did some of my other colleagues notice when Mark Marin announced he filmed his, his forthcoming special. He just taped it a couple of weeks ago here in New York City for HBO. And he, he threw, he threw some shade at Netflix without saying Netflix and that, oh, I'm finally on the proper platform. I keep going back to Jeff Dunham because when I interviewed him, he talked about how he had two ne- two specials on Netflix, but he felt even he was not being served by the algorithm and by the forces that be. And then, just the other day, Nate Bargatze, one of the best comedians around, who was whose star was kind of helped shine through Netflix, he's making his new special on Amazon Prime. Yep, yep. What does that say for Netflix when? these critically acclaimed popular comedians are bolting. There's a lot of grumbling about Netflix from all corners. It's not, it's, it's not, it's, there's a lot. I think it says that a lot of people got fed up with Netflix this year. And a lot of them started looking to make deals with other places, often not finding enough. You know, that's the one thing, Mm -hmm. but I think there's starting to be some examples. You you pointed to big ones. I think Nate Bargassi is a really significant one. But I would think, I mean, Amazon is has the power to certainly outpay Netflix on a Nate Bargassi. I think, um, you know, Nikki Glaser is somebody else who came out on HBO. Right. These are people who were on Netflix, went to HBO, right? Yeah. It's too early to say, like, RIP Netflix for sure. Like, Netflix is still the biggest game in town. And it's still, again, I I still think they're they're steadily putting out, you know, um, popular specials, many of which are really good. Like I said, like Earthquake to me is, Chappelle put it out. Like mm-hmm. Earthquake has been a great comic for a long time from my hometown of Washington, D.C. Um, he, he shot it from Washington, D.C. Now he's a next level of fame completely due to Netflix. And, you know, they also trusted Chappelle to let, to, I, I assume Chappelle chose that one. Like credit words do. Like that that mattered. But increasingly, I think you're seeing people rather you know break on HBO or somewhere else. So yeah, I think there'll be more. There will be more Nate Bargatze level names coming up at, at non Netflix right. places in my uh, from what I hear. So you asked me what other names I had, and you know I tried to prepare for this not just mentally, but logistically by creating a new concept a year and a half ago called employee of the month because comedy doesn't have an HR department, which we've all seen why that's terrible and terribly necessary, but announcing an employee of the month thinking that when I went back at the end of the year, I could look at these monthly winners and go, Oh, that's obviously the MVP. But for 2022, it, I was all over the map. January, I picked Kamal Bell. He came out with his uh, docu-series about Cosby and also 
has his uh, Emmy-winning CNN series. February was Zelensky from Ukraine. March was Amy Schumer. April was Gerard Carmichael. May was the kids in the hall for their Mm, spectacular unforeseen comeback with both a documentary and a great new slew of, of sketch episodes. On Amazon. On Amazon. June, I had Joel Kim Booster, who had a special as well as Fire Island. July, I had Janelle James, breakout, finally had her breakout on Abbott Elementary. Quinta Brunson could be on the list. Um, August, I had Alyssa Lamparis, who uh, had a great special on Peacock, and then also had a uh, a nice breakthrough on a show that just got canceled on Showtime, Flatbush Misdemeanors. Mm. Uh, September, Kate Berlant. October, I went with Sarah Sherman, who has been the only thing that brings me joy on Saturday Night Live at this point. Although James Austin Johnson is also uh, fabulous on that show. And they're both relatively new cast members. And then November, I ended up going with Elon Musk Effect in terms of the comedians who stood up to him and were getting suspended and banned left and right. So I was kind of all over the map. And then I realized that a name I didn't have on the list who might be interesting to talk about is Trevor Noah, who hosted the Grammys. He was the keynote speaker at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and then ended the Daily Show and the very next day filmed a Netflix special, which was pretty good. Yeah, he's certainly, I mean, I mean, it's, uh, he sort of shows that he doesn't really need the Daily Show in a way or, or, uh, but, Do uh, we even need the Daily Show? Is I think what what his departure I mean, I, I signals. Got hopes. I have high hopes. I, I was not like the Trevor Noah era was this golden age where I I do, but I do think he did a lot of things well, including mm-hmm. I don't think he gets enough credit for his correspondence. Ronnie Chang, Roy Wood in Roy particular. Wood Jr., like yeah. I, I I wrote this in the paper, but I, I like I want Comedy Central to give them a show. One of them really. I think I, I like Jordan Klepper. I like some, I like, you know, but I feel like those two are really, they, there's, a, there's always a, like a, you want to get like some unknown quantity or some big star, but yeah, these yeah. jobs are like workhorse jobs and you want people who, who are prolific and have an interesting point of view. You might not even agree with them. I don't always agree with everything these guys say. I don't care. They have like a, they, they, I think have the kind of mo- comic minds that would, that could flourish and more importantly, and then on the Daily Show, and make it really relevant. And also, I think they're more dedicated to jokes than Trevor Noah is. They have higher standards for it than Trevor Noah is. Trevor Noah is a, is a charming performer, but mm-hmm. they really are joke artists. Um, and I think that would benefit. I want to say a couple of things that are not like some big, but pe- but things that I saw this year that I thought were great that but pro- will probably maybe not pop until okay. next year. One is Sarah Schaefer has a show. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I haven't seen it. This have- show's going to be big. This show's going to be big in like the kind of the world of one person shows that have something mm-hmm. to say about comedy. Like the like the Hannah Gatsby, it's not as, you know, as uh, quite as political as that. It's not political, but spoofing a Scientology guru about how, she's, she's a guru telling you how to get into the comedy world. The genesis of this came out of those podcasts she was doing? I, I mean, I'm sure. And she's been around for, you know, she's, yeah. been, she's been good for a long time. She's done a lot of different things, seen a lot of parts of that talk show. She's had stand up, you know, so she's seen a lot of parts of the industry. She's the perfect person 
for this to be like a right. nice vehicle. So I would say like, I saw like an early version of that and it's mm-hmm. going to be all over the, I think it's going to be, you know, Edinburgh, all those places next year. Martin Urbano is another one. And he's sort of like, you know, he's younger Brooklyn mm-hmm. comic or not. You may he's playing late twenties now or something like that, but right. he has a kind of, he's like a younger Jesselnik in the, in his joke writing. But also and, mocking the industry. Also mocking the industry in a way that I think is, is, you know, clever and interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see what, Comes Have you seen this comic, Isabel Hagen? I mean, I saw her tonight's show. Yeah. Performance. So she, I haven't seen her. I know she was doing a show at uh, Union Hall. Yep. I yep. haven't seen it there, the full show. And she's a classical, you know, she's a Juilliard mm-hmm. trained and like incorporates music, this in, music, but classical music right. and jokes in a way that I don't, I haven't seen. That to me is really, you know, I'm I'm interested to see what she does with that. Well, I know, I know you and I will love all of these things. I, I wonder and I worry if the general public will see it for what it is and can be like we can. But I guess that's our job, right? Is to alert the mainstream general public that this is what you should be paying attention. I guess so. I mean, as I said before, it's like, I'm interested in the general public. That's why I say Cat Williams is actually the most popular, right? Mm-hmm. All the stuff that, and, but I'm ultimately, it's not the most important thing. Like it's what, like, I think is interesting, exciting, and good. The reality is what, what's revealed by that Cat Williams fact is we don't really know. Like we're all guessing to some degree. Like Trevor Noah is to certain people, the daily show is the biggest, is comedy. I think the talk show matters less than those before, but trust me, there are people who really care about the daily show. So it's like guessing about what is popular or not is not a game that I think is, I mean, I, I mean, it's fun in the way that games are fun, but it's not like a serious thing that like I can put stock in in the way that I can, but you're like this artist is doing good work. Keep an eye on them. Right. It's because we've become so fragmented thanks to social media and thanks to the way things have divided from the big three networks into streaming platforms that don't reveal their numbers. And even if you want to argue that the Nielsen numbers a generation ago were flawed, oh yeah, we at least had something that we agreed on that, yeah. Oh, this is what everybody's talking about because this is what everybody's watching. You're right. We don't know. Twitter yeah. is only Twitter pre Elon. Twitter was only 10% of us chattering amongst ourselves so we we didn't even know what the other 90 percent of people were actually watching and talking about completely and to like sort of like argue against myself for a second and this plays into an mvp i mean a big thing mm-hmm. happened this year with Chappelle's uh snl monologue talking about kanye and and anti-semitism one thing i noticed having nothing to do with that issue is that Chappelle references are still kind of rooted. A lot of them are rooted in like the nineties and the eighties. Like a lot of, they're still like, you feel like it's OJ. Our generation has a problem. We're stuck. No, but, but let, let me, I want to, I want to defend him. Okay. Because my first instinct is like, Oh, that's like, why is he having these old references? And maybe it's like, Oh, it's because of his age, whatever. Maybe, whatever. Oh, I see. Where but maybe okay. it's not. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is to build on what you just said that He's making references to a time when we can assume everyone understood the the six things in pop culture that year, right? Okay. You can't yeah. do that now. So if you're if your job is to make jokes and you're the kind of comedian that wants everyone to understand all your references, which is not every comedian, then choosing to make jokes that are like 
20 years ago, mm-hmm. which, you know, still people, young people today get like, they know Seinfeld, they know friends, they're still there, you know, in memes or it's kind of like, you know, maybe that's why. Now, I'm not saying I know that's why Chappelle's doing it, but I hear that Chris Rock, you hear too, Chris Rock, who also really pays attention to, he's not like Dennis Miller trying to make jokes that no one can get. He wants you to understand his premises and his references. Right. Still, like his, you know, people, everyone criticizes his Oscar joke because he's making a G.I. Jane reference, right? right. But it's like, yeah, because G.I. Jane happened at a time when, like, everyone <laughs> knew what that was. Everyone, How many haircuts today? Like, if you're making a reference to a haircut on the TV show Wednesday, they're like, if you're in a certain right. demographic, you'll get it, but other people won't. Right. So actually, like, you're making a calculated bet that more people will – it's probably a good calculated bet to make a 90s reference – and think that more people will get it because the older people will get it and younger people might get it in some retro way. Mm-hmm. And if you make a reference to some YouTuber now, we're like zero old people are going to get it. Right. And like, who is Mr. Beast? Why? <laughs> totally, totally. Man, a fraction of the young people. I'm, I could be 100% wrong, but it did mm-hmm. make me think. Okay. Well, I think, and as you were, as you were saying that, it, it made me realize that I'm glad that in the past year I've, I've tried to dive into the Polestar numbers or the Patreon numbers because those are quantifiable things where you can say, in both cases, this is where people are putting their money and saying, I want to spend money on this comedian. And that's saying something that you can't say with a thousand retweets. Totally. Totally. No, that's that. those stories that you did were fascinating, particularly about podcasts. I think there were some of them like, who was... I didn't, I was shocked by some of the, you had a story where it was like one of the biggest Patreons was, what was the, what was the one? It was like a couple. Oh, there's a few, there's a few of these podcasts that aren't necessarily even about comedy, but they're run by comedians and they're making six figures into millions of dollars. Maybe not net, but definitely gross. Like it's. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's really interesting. It it, it reminds me of when I was first getting immersed in comedy and recognizing that there were a number of comedians who weren't on TV, but were millionaires just on their road gigs. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't realize you could make that much money in this business. And you can still, I mean, I I think I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but my read is that like we've reached a certain saturation point with podcasts that it's a little harder than it, it used to be to, to get big on on a new podcast you and and that everyone feels like they have to do it but a lot of these podcasts are not being listened to by many people obviously some of them are i think it's harder it's just like anything else there's so many out there it's harder to carve out space i think that touring that's the most optimistic story you look at someone like taylor tomlinson she's a huge star you know she's selling look at you all you gotta do is look at where she's playing She's selling out, you know, theaters all over the world. You know, that's a young comedian. There was a sense like, where are the next big stars who like the next? Well, she's, she's it. Right. Like she's at the beginning of her career. She hasn't had even, a, she's going to be have like a TV show and a movie and all those things. If you just look at the the, the ticket sales that, that, that she's pushing and she's doing it. I don't think she has a podcast, but she's all over social media. Oh yeah. Like she's clearly figured out. I think she was at first kind of... Oh, yeah, TikTok, Instagram, all that, yeah. 
she's always she, she's good at it. She wasn't always good at it, but she's she's good at it now. Well, uh, Jason, thankfully we started doing this podcast together eight years ago, so <laughs> so we're we're grandfathered in, soon to be grandfathers. We're grandfathered in into the uh, old podcast media where everybody is listening to us and paying attention to what we say. I don't know that we came up with a consensus of who this year's MVP is. We had a lot of good candidates. But we had a lot of good candidates. Yeah, I think so. I think it was a pretty, was it overall, would you say a good year or what? Ooh, I feel like it's a, I feel like it's a transition year. I feel like 2023 is going to be a big year. Like you said about the things you're already excited to see coming down the pike. I think, I think 2022 was the year that we got back into full live performance. Netflix ramped back up to putting out one special a week. Things got back to quote unquote normal in comedy. Of course, there are plenty of disadvantaged people in the world who say back to normal in comedy is not good for them. I mean, Louis C.K., Talk about people who are selling out large venues. Louis C.K. is back selling large venues once more. I think he's going to have trouble selling tickets. I already think there's there's some evidence of it. But, you know, that's, that's the thing, you know. It's like it always comes back to gravity. It's like you can – the farther you get from mainstream media success, mm-hmm. like the farther you get from having a show on, on a network that a lot of people see that being, that's being written about, you know, the harder it gets – and like it's you can you yeah you can get you can get a YouTube special that makes something that it, but eventually you know there's the new thing comes up and crowds you out right. right that's just the way this works and so um, there's some people who all you if their mainstream just is big enough they can have a whole career they can spend like decades you could be like Vanilla Ice just on that one brief moment and uh, I think there's a whole generation of people who just don't even aren't don't don't even know who Louis C.K. is isn't that passionate. You know, I already feel it. Like people are not. It's not. He's, he doesn't inspire the same kind of passion that he did a few years ago. Um, you see it with someone like David Letterman. It's like he's you know he's important to people that matter. But there's a now. It's been a couple of years. You're off TV, and um, yeah, you're not in the zeitgeist. You're not in the zeitgeist. So I, and you know, I, I think the thing about the mainstream. There's a million critiques of the mainstream media and Netflix, but certainly what I've seen in the media is that for all its flaws, it's, it is better at co-opting than anybody else. Like it in, even like you look at like Tim Dillon, he's on Netflix now. Mm-hmm. Like he's at, like, he's on this least thing. No one cares. No one, it's like, he's, it's like the, um, eventually they kind of either, they make their way in. Louis came out with that movie and yeah, he had, he's still touring, but I, I think he's not interested also in that level of fame that he had before. He doesn't need it. So oh, yeah. um, it doesn't really matter. What matters more is like people like Taylor Thomason who are on the, the rise, who are about to establish their, they're about to have their mainstream moment um, when she has her like movie coming out um, her like where she's the star of a feature and then that that's when, like, all right, how much can you capitalize and exploit that moment? So I guess it's time then for me to finally cancel our discussions on cancel culture. So in 2023, we can only talk about 
all of the great things that are happening in comedy. I don't want to cancel, but I'm just doing it. Aren't doing? Doesn't it bore you? Oh so no, much? I'm tired. Yeah, I'm tired of it. I yeah. mean, like, I really find it like I, I. It depresses me a bit how much of the media is focused on it. But I'm but really, we are guilty of this. Like, we ask too much. I'm so tired. Like, look, the Daily Beast has a lot of good work, but it, they. I, I wish it's clear that they want to ask every comedian about cancel culture and then they put that in the headline and get some kind of click and it's just tiresome i mean i it's um it's not that i'm not interested at all in it but i just find it cynical i i that's why that's why i i I look forward to and i implore all of the comedians out there to stop talking about it in your own specials yeah i mean someone like sebastian forces you to have to talk about it which is weird to me that 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 he's worth talking about because he doesn't need to. He already has a big audience. That's not his core audience. So you right. have to assume he there always was an element of nostalgia, deep nostalgia in his work. Um, so that plays into that, you know, part of again, and it's not crazy. It's like some sometimes like it's a it's a source of interesting material to be like, oh, I'm having trouble adjusting this new thing or this new thing is ridiculous, which it sometimes it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does make you think like, Oh, he's choosing to do this. This tells me where he's coming from. It doesn't mean he can't do it. I'm sure there's plenty of people who love it and it could be funny, but to me, it's like, it, it tells me where he's coming from and it's pretty hack, but I still love Sebastian, by the way. I don't like, like, yeah. I think Sebastian is like the best act out comedian out there. Yeah, I I agree. I just I feel cynically that they've all made this cynical, calculated show business move to go. This is what's going to get me more money, is by appealing think, to this. That, I see. That doesn't make sense to me. He already has the money. He's already selling. He doesn't need it. He's he he's got there without doing that. That's that's what makes me think he actually does care and deeply believe that this trans stuff has gone too far. Right. That's that, that is what I, so that tells me something about him. Well, uh, 2022 came in like a lamb and came out identifying as a lion. (laughs) Nice. Nice. (laughs) Nice wrap up. Call that. Well done. Those are my improv skills. Jason Zinneman. (laughs) Thank you. Once more, it's always a delight and a pleasure uh, and even though you have such elevated status now at the times that you're willing to <laughs> Oh sit. my God. As if you can't say that when you're also ready. I'm, I'm a lowly freelancer. I'm not a guild member. Uh, this is uh, the worst part. I was a freelancer for 20 years. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for <laughs> kibitzing with the peasants. I appreciate it and look forward to a, uh, bountiful and beautiful 2023. Great to always great talking to you, Sean. Uh, uh, happy holidays and uh, talk to you next year. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.